Well, good morning. It's great to see you, and it's good to be together. This is the last message of our, uh, in our series called Living Greatly. We've been looking at it over the last few weeks. And uh, we've been looking at the teachings of Jesus that have been identified as great, either by Jesus himself calling it the greatest, or by the church identifying this as the great teaching of Jesus. And so to really, to be a Christian is to say that you want to follow Jesus. You want to be obedient to what Jesus, uh, to how Jesus has called us to live. And so if we want to be honest with ourselves about, uh, and uh, kind of acknowledge our own hypocrisy, we, we need to look hard in the mirror and say, are we, are we living up to what Jesus has, uh, called us to do and be about? And so this is us really wanting to examine that again and say and look again at what Jesus has highlighted as kind of important and just the pressing issues of what it means to follow him. So if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're listening in, um, you, yeah, this is your opportunity really to just kind of listen in on to us trying to be true to what we think it means to follow Jesus. And if you have questions about language or exp- you want things expanded on some of these ideas, we'd be happy to talk more about um, what some of these things mean in, in more practical terms and, and tease them out in some way. And so, so far we looked at the significance of these teachings as a whole. Uh, we looked at the idea of contextualization, which is this, this idea of considering the context in which you are living these commands out and allowing that to influence the way in which we live out the great teachings of Jesus. Last week, Kevin looked at the, what's known as the great commandment. It's the commandment that when Jesus was pressed, what's the most important commandment? This is what he identified as being the greatest. And so this week we're going to be looking at uh, what has been known as the Great Commission. And although Jesus did not use this language or called it the Great Commission, the church has long identified this as, as a great summary statement of great importance because it captures really the, the mission of the church. It was one of the last things that Jesus taught to his disciples before he ascended back into heaven. And so it's, it's, it's been a really important defining teaching in the history of the church. And so to miss this teaching is really to miss the whole mission of the church. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important teaching to consider and to dwell upon what it means in your own life if you want to follow Jesus. There is a, a metaphor that is often used throughout the New Testament about fruit. And, um, and the basic idea is you can tell the, what type of tree something is or what kind of plant it is by the fruit that shows up on its branches. And so I have here uh, in my hand what I have recently discovered as the best apple variety in the world. Some of you probably have strong convictions about this, but I'm, I'm here to tell you you're wrong. This is the best apple variety currently on the market. It's been, in, it's been being worked on for years in laboratories, which maybe doesn't sound good, but it's good. It's called the Sweet Tango, and it's this perfect balance of sweetness and tanginess. And... Um, it actually has the world record for uh, loudest crunch. So I'm just going to. I've actually got a fake tooth, so it's hard for me to bite into apples without 
taking it out. But you get the idea. It's a fantastic apple. Sweet tango, check it out. Why am I talking about this? Well, I think it's helpful to think about the great commandment, which is what we talked about last week, being the love, to the, the, the teaching is that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Basically, all of who you are should be in love towards God. And the second Jesus says is just like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So love is a defining mark of a Christian. And so in many ways, love for God and love for neighbor is the fruit that we should be seeing in our lives. That if a tree is not producing fruit, it's not a healthy tree. Or it's not the kind of tree that you think it is. And so the fruit in our lives should overwhelmingly be marked by love. Love for God and love for others. But it's important to recognize that a tree does not produce, the, the, the reason a tree produces fruit is not just to have fruit. The reason a tree produces fruit is actually for the purpose of multiplication. It, it, wants, it, it wants to create fruit so that it's enjoyed, so that, that it actually reproduces. And so that's really what I think is helpful distinction, really, as we look at the Great Commission, that the, the mission of the church uh, or the great commandment is really the fruit that we should mark our lives. But if we're missing the great commission, we're missing the very mission and purpose of the church. Tim Keller says this, that community without mission is like cancer. It's growth, it's growth without purpose. And it, it's a harsh statement perhaps, but I think it gets to the point that cancer in its essence is growth without any purpose. It's it doesn't have a purpose in your body, and so it has devastating effects. And community, really, when it's detached from mission, when it does not have a purpose, then it, it's really it's destructive, actually. There needs to be a point for the community. There needs to be a mission. And so that's really what the great commission is all about. It's Jesus giving us clarity on what the mission is that he's calling us to. And so uh, if, if you have your Bible here or if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat um, somewhere in your row. And it's, we're looking at Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. It's a really good apple. So it says this. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this morning I want to spend a little bit of time looking at the context of this passage. I want to spend a a little bit of time looking at the content of these words. And uh, there was a sermon uh, that was preached actually as part of our denominational gathering a number of years ago, and they brought in a New Testament scholar by the name of Tim Getter, and he spoke on this passage, and it has stuck with me, many of the observations he made 
from this passage. And so many of the things I'm bringing to your attention are from Tim Getter. Um, but I think it's really helpful to actually start looking at some of the, the greater context, but also specifically the content of what, of what Jesus is saying. Because I think this, this passage actually has, has a lot of confusion around it. And so, actually, I want to start by looking a little bit at the grammar of this passage. And I know as soon as I said the word grammar, some of you fell asleep. And some of you brought out your Greek dictionaries that you're, you bring every Sunday, and you're thinking to yourself, finally. Well, regardless of where you are on the passion scale of grammar, I think it's really important, actually, to just look a little bit at this, and it helps to clarify what it is that Jesus is, is really getting at. And so... Within this passage, you have two things. I mean, you have, you have more than two things, but you have two key words, two, 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 two key types of words. You have imperatives, and you have participles. Parad- imperative is something that you use um, to in- give an instruction. So if I were to say to you, close the door. Close. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got some apple in my throat. <coughs> <laughs> Close is the imperative. I'm asking you to close the door. I could be more polite. I could say, could you please close the door? But really, I'm, I'm giving the instruction, the command to close. And so alongside imperatives, you have uh, participles. And they're often ing words. And so participles do not really command. They are really just a way to help you describe the command provide more details to the main verb that you're instructing. And so um, you could say, um, or here's an example. Michelle could say to me, Michelle is my wife, taking the garbage can with you, please clean up the mess you made in the kitchen. She would be using one parcel, taking, and one imperative, clean up. What she really wants done is to have the mess cleaned up. That's the, main, that's the main command, clean up. But she could add on taking the garbage with you. She's adding on more details to how she wants this thing done. Of course, the more um, parcels you add on, the more details or sp- more specifics you're, you're attaching to the main thing that you're asking. And so... This is an important distinction because when you actually look at the uh, teaching, there's, there's participles and there are imperatives. And so if you really want to know what Jesus is asking us or commanding us, it's important to see what it is he's actually saying. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. So here's, here's the Great Commission. I'll read it again. It says, Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And so you could look at it, and there's, there's four main parts. There's go. There's make disciples. There's baptizing. And there's teaching. And so the question is, how many of these are imperatives and how many of these are participles? When you read it this way, in my translation that I just read, there's really two of each. The baptizing, the teaching are really the participles, but the commands, the imperatives are go and make 
But some of you are probably reading from different translations. And as you read from different translations, you'll see that the phrasing is probably different. The New Testament, at least Matthew's gospel, is written in Greek. And so as you bring it into English, there's always going to be different ways that you can phrase things. And there's always a little bit of room for things to be missed or emphasis to be added. And so in some Bibles, there are two imperatives and two participles. In other Bibles, there are three imperatives and one participle. In some Bibles, there are four imperatives. Go, make, disciples, baptize, teach. They're all seen, read as commands. And there may be some exceptions to this, but probably there are either two, three, or four imperatives as you read this in the English. So when you go to check the original language, the question is, how many imperatives are there in this passage? What is Jesus, what's the essence of what Jesus is commanding? And so if you go to check the original language, and what scholars will point out, is that there's actually only one imperative. The rest are really describing this main one command. And the answer to the question, which one is it, which one of these four is it, the answer is actually none of them. When you look at the Greek, there is... There is only one, and it's none of the ones that we often read in our English. The main imperative is actually disciple. Jesus actually uses the word disciple as a verb. The mission of the church that Jesus is giving to his disciples right here is that you need to go disciple as you're going. The text, if you read it just word for word in the Greek, it says, going, disciple all the nations, baptizing and teaching. And there's not an emphasis, emphasis actually on individuals. It's this picture of all nations, of all ethnicities, of all groups coming together and being discipled. It's this grand vision of all people across the world coming to know and love Jesus again. See, going is not the goal. When going is the goal, then the Great Commission feels like we have to become missionaries and we have to go. Baptizing is not the goal. When baptizing becomes the goal, then the Great Commission becomes this numbers game and we keep track based on how many baptisms we do and that's how well we're doing. Teaching is not the goal. When it is, the Great Commission and Christianity in general becomes simply information to spread. Discipling is the goal. And when it is, the Great Commission becomes about helping people become like Jesus. As you go, wherever you go, wherever you go, your mission given to you by Jesus is to help others come to know and love Jesus as well. That's what Jesus is asking of you. It means that you are not saved for your own sake. You're saved for the sake of the larger mission of God. A phrase we say sometimes around here is that disciples are handmade, not mass-produced. Which in essence is saying that 
Every person's faith and discipleship comes from another person's individual involvement in their life. It isn't about structuring this huge program and just running people through. There's a place for programs and all that. We're not saying programs are bad, but in essence, discipleship is about one person coming beside another person. It's important to know that Jesus also puts the emphasis on nations. It's this enormous vision. Of course, we talk to individuals, we baptize individuals, individuals are taught, but individuals become, and individuals become disciples, but the emphasis is on the larger collection. It's this enormous vision. I want to keep saying that because it's so important to see the larger vision, to lift our eyes from our world a little bit and to see this massive mission of God to make the world right again. And so every individual coming to Christ is really just a small part of this enormous mission of God that God is inviting us to. And so during these services, we've actually been taking time to highlight some of our missional partners and ministries. And so I wanted to take a moment actually to draw attention to our, one of our strategic partners in Thailand. Because as we, as, even as I start to talk about this great vision, it can be, feel overwhelming and to, to think about how in the world I've got my family and my life and my schedule and my work. How, is, how are we supposed to be a part of this larger vision? And the, and the, the truth is there's, there's Christians all over the world that are living out the same call. And so it's really important sometimes to hear about what God is doing in other parts of the world. So I want to invite Dave Froze up actually right now. And um, Dave has been a part of the board of a ministry called Vision Thailand. And uh, Vision Thailand has uh, been about taking the Great Commission seriously in, in Thailand for a number of years. So I'm going to hand that over to you, Dave. I thought you were going to leave the apple for me to taste. Oh, you're welcome to. <laughs> I don't know if Jeff's really qualified to be the judge of what's the best apple. He doesn't, he, <laughs> he doesn't grow any fruit. <laughs> anyway. Vision Thailand Ministries was born out of the 2004 tsunami that hit Southeast Asia uh, at Christmas time. As a result of that tsunami, there was a great uppouring of compassion and financial aid that went to that part of the world. And one of the results of that was the gospel taking a foothold in Thailand. Thailand is a Buddhist country steeped in tradition spiritism, and superstition. It's a dark country where human trafficking and the sex trade run rampant. The Christians in Thailand make up less than 1% of the population, and the majority of people in Thailand have not heard of the name of Jesus. Thailand is an unreached people group. And yet we believe that God has hundreds of thousands of people in that country that he wants to draw to himself. Vision Thailand's philosophy of uh, mission is to teach first-generation Christians to evangelize their own people. Currently there are uh, 54 small churches under the umbrella of Vision Thailand after a decade of ministry. There are two small 
schools, training lay pastors to shepherd these small house churches. Our vision for 2018 was to plant 10 new churches, and as of right now, we have planted six. Thailand is a diverse country comprising world-class cities as well as tribal peoples, and the tribal peoples are mostly concentrated in the north, and they have responded to the gospel in amazing ways. The task before us would be impossible if it weren't for the promises of God that virtually guarantee that the power of the crucified Christ will ultimately be successful in breaking the chains that hold the population of Thailand in the grip of Satan and the powers of darkness. My encouragement to us this morning is to pray that the Church of Thailand, for the Church of Thailand, as they enthusiastically embrace the transforming power of the gospel. We live in unprecedented times. We can personally witness It takes uh, a couple thousand dollars, a plane ticket. And, uh, yeah, we can personally be involved in, these, in the life of the Church of Thailand. We can witness these baptisms ourselves. And so I want to encourage you not to limit your horizon on how you can get involved in fulfilling the Great Commission that Jeff's been talking to us about. The sky is the limit. And you can, you and I, as ordinary people, we don't have to have missionary credentials necessarily. We just have a passion to love the Lord and see people come to know Him to be able to be involved in this way. What I love about uh, Vision Thailand is is the philosophy has been ties reaching ties. And so, it's it, again, when you hear of these stories, it's not the, the white uh, Western person coming in and, and obliterating culture and saying you have to become like this. It's about ties meeting Jesus and having this unique expression of, of Jesus in the Thai culture. Christianity is unique, actually. It's a unique religion in the world in that it's the only uh, multi cultural, uh, truly multicultural religion. Every other religion is predominantly associated with a people group or an area of the world, but Christianity is unique in that it has spread to every corner uh, and, and throughout every culture of the world. God's doing amazing things around the world right now. And I think we can sometimes miss that in our current culture. I read something recently that was super encouraging. It said in 1958, uh, Mao's wife of China said that Christianity in China has been confined to museums. It is dead and buried. That was 1958. Fast forward 60 years, and there are 70 million Christians in China. God has a mission in this world, and it's not going to fail. And the question is, do we want to be a part of it? You're designed to have purpose and mission in your life. When we don't feel like we have those things, there's, we feel like there's something missing 
in us. And there's actually no greater purpose and mission you could have than to be a part of the eternal work of God. I think so often we want to be a part of that, but maybe we don't quite understand or know how to do that in our context now. And we understand that, and we actually want to start offering some some more practical classes on how to start living this out in our context. It's something we want to actually start in 2019. But for this morning, I want to just kind of come close our time together by looking at the context of Jesus' Great Commission. And I think just even looking at a little bit of the context can be an encouragement for us to think about how do we now start living that now? How do we start taking that seriously now? So I want to look at a few different just contexts briefly of the Great Commission. The first context is following the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had died, and the disciples thought they had followed a, a fool, and they had been duped, and that it was over. And then they see that Jesus has actually come back to life. And he meets them in Galilee. Galilee is actually the place where it all started three years before. And now Jesus has conquered the grave. And he meets them in their failures. They have, many of them abandoned him in his last moments, and he comes to them in their failures. And he offers them forgiveness. He regathers his frightened followers and he gives them courage. Courage because he had just risen from the dead. And if the grave can't stop him, who's going to stop him? And so the resurrection of Jesus means that there is hope for our failures. Many of us, if you follow Jesus for any time of your life, you would feel the feeling of failure. Like, I have not taken this seriously, or I've not done what I'm supposed to do. But Jesus is here in in this context talking to a bunch of failures. And he sends them out in that. Second context is worship. It says when they saw him, they worshipped him. Jesus sends them out into mission, out of their worship. One of the primary functions of worship is is to fall at the feet of Jesus, to give him worth. And and actually, it has a sending effect on us. It's why we think Sunday mornings are so important. It's to recenter ourselves, to worship together. It has a a sending effect on us. And actually, the sending itself and the obedience in the sending is, is an expression of worship as well. It's out of their worship that they, they saw him and they, and they wanted to obey him out of their worship. But it also says in the very next line that some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus said to them. Now, we don't want to cultivate our doubts, but I think what we need to do is we need to be aware and honest about the doubts that we have. Jesus did not say to his disciples that you need to first get rid of all your doubt. Anything that you're dealing with, that you're struggling with, clean that up, and then you need to follow me. No, it's actually in his doubt, in their doubt, that he invites them to go and make disciples. Jesus uses us despite our doubts. And sometimes God uses our doubts in the lives of other people. When we 
we can be honest about our convictions and about our doubts, we actually become more authentic witnesses to the work of Jesus in our life. Doubts and honesty about them does not diminish our witness. It actually increases it because we're real enough to be honest about how we're doing and what we're dealing with. Sometimes we think that the, you have to be the, the key to effective um, sharing of your faith is just confidence in knowing all the answers and having every response covered. That's not at all what Jesus is asking his doubting disciples here right now. Step out in obedience even in the midst of your doubts. The, second con- the fourth context is one of community. Jesus does not talk to specific individuals. He talks to a group. When we think about the Great Commission, we, we, we shouldn't think about it as me and my life doing my thing with the people around me. It's the Great Commission as a community endeavor. When you try to do it on your own or when you think about it and as being only your responsibility, you carry a weight that you were never intended to carry. The call to disciple is actually a call to community discipleship. And that's, again, part of the reason why we gather here as a community, why community is so important to the life of the church. Because discipleship, you don't have what it takes, actually, to properly disciple people. You need more people contributing. Fifth context is the authority and the presence of Jesus. You know, the stage is set. Jesus has them gathered. They've come back to where he told them to come back. Some are worshiping. Some are doubting. And then Jesus opens his mouth to speak. And what does he say? Does he say, go? Go and make disciples? No, he's not quite finishing up the scene yet. And so he says, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. When you take the Great Commission seriously in your life, you're not doing it in your own authority. You go in the authority of Jesus. It's Jesus that we proclaim. And so sometimes I think we need to come to, we have to be honest with ourselves. And is our, is our doubt, is our hesitancy based because we think we don't have all the right answers and we are proclaiming our own confidence in Jesus? Or can we, be, can we recognize that Jesus is the one we're proclaiming. It's his authority. It's his confidence that we're proclaiming. The church bears witness to Jesus, not to itself. If we wanted to give, if we wanted to put our lives on the table and say, look at this community, you have to put your hope in this community. As good of a church as this could be, as clean as your life could be, you should never say, look at me. And there, that should convince you. Our our message is always, look at Jesus. He's our hope. He's the thing. He's the one we're bearing witness to. And even in his authority, he he ends the statement with his presence. He says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. The church has a privilege and joining God in this great task. The sixth context is loving God and neighbor. We talked about this last week, but it's so important to come back to this. 
that we go and make disciples because we love God. We go and make disciples because we love our neighbors. If our participation in the Great Commission is motivated by feelings of guilt or by the horrors of hell or the glamour of a mission trip or anything like that, then we are not actually being motivated by the love of God. And I think when we do this, when we lose sight of the the great commandment, we actually make people into projects. And nobody likes being felt like they're a project. God has not loved us like we are a project. And so our motivation is actually out of the motivation of which God has loved us. I love this scene from Acts 4. The disciples received this mission from Jesus. They've started to work together. They're trying to figure out what this looks like in their context. And they're starting to face persecution. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 4. It says, Now as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple, and the Sadducees confronted them. Because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead, using Jesus as the example. And so they seized them and put them in custody until the next day. And since it was already evening, many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of of people that came to believe was about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas of the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had heard Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone that rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people that we must be saved by it. And I love this last line. It said, And when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's something about being with Jesus that changes us. They had encountered the resurrected Jesus, and it transformed their lives. And they received this mission from Jesus. And if you look at the disciples before the resurrection of Jesus, they were were constantly misunderstanding. They were constantly hesitant to obey. And they had this radical transformation after this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And they become new men. They become new people. 
and they heard him talking, and there's something about just the way they were talking and the, the, the effect of their words and what that was being done in their lives that the people hearing had no other choice but for, to conclude that they had been with Jesus. And nothing has changed today. When you encounter the profound love of Jesus, you realize that it's what your heart was made for. It's the water your heart has always been thirsty for. It's the true source you're longing to draw from your whole life. When you experience the unconditional grace of Jesus, you can feel the freedom of not having to prove yourself constantly. You can let go of this pressure to be good enough. We don't have to be good enough. Jesus is good enough. And when you get that, it unleashes something in your life. When you experience the forgiveness of Jesus, you feel the release the release of guilt, of failures. You actually begin to feel the power to forgive other people who have hurt you deeply. When you experience the adoption of Jesus, that you're invited into his family, you know that you are finally fully seen and that you are fully loved. And that you're actually being brought into a family that will last forever the community that you've been longing for. And when you experience the power of Jesus, you know that death does not have to be the final goodbye. And more than that, you know that there is hope actually to change in your life today. The disciples had an encounter with Jesus and it changed them. And they had... They had no other choice, in a sense, but to tell people about it and to live and be and join Jesus in, the, in this mission because it, it had done something to them. The same is true today. That as we gather here, as we worship him, that we can have these same encounters with Jesus. He's as alive today as he was when he encountered the, the disciples in Galilee. We're made to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Our faith is, is not for ourselves. It's to be part of something bigger. And Jesus is inviting us to be a part of it. What better privilege could we have than to be a part of helping people know what they're made for? What this world is supposed to be like. It's a broken world. And Jesus is inviting us to be a part of proclaiming the solution to the brokenness. This is the mission of God, and it's going to work. It's going to succeed. We know that. And so the question is, do we want to be a part of that? And if the answer is yes, but you're not sure how, then do something about it. Because if you're not willing to do something about it, you're missing on a life that is great you're missing actually out on the very thing that you were made for. And you're missing out on a deeper experience of Jesus where you can get to know him and love him in even truer ways because you're learning what it means to follow him more and more closely.
And so Cornerstone, let's not settle for just making our faith about ourselves. Let's not settle for saying, you know what, I love Jesus and that's great in my life and I'm just going to keep it to myself and maybe my family, my kids. No, we have a responsibility, we have a privilege of being about spreading the news of Jesus. And so let's live great lives. Let's pray. So God, thank you that you went on a mission to save us. That while we were lost and while we were rejecting you and and living in disobedience, you did not allow that to push you away, but you drew near. God, thank you that you love us, that your love motivates you and invites us in. And so, Father, we don't want to we don't want to slip even in this moment to feelings of guilt right now. We don't want to allow voices of condemnation to come in and say, I've failed or I'm not doing this or if I'm being honest, I don't want to do this. We don't want to slip into those voices or those attitudes but would you by your spirit even now in this moment would you spur us on would you wake us up would you not allow us to just settle for by following you by name alone would you not allow us to settle for just shallow experiences of you half-hearted obedience We want to be a part of your mission. And so would you help us? We need your help desperately. And so would you do that in us? Would you even cause us to worship this morning as we, as we move into a time of worship? Would that, would that be a time where you connect with us and spur us on? We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.